This is Everyday Light, a perfectly imperfect reading of the One Year Daily Bible. I'm Molly, a fellow pilgrim on the road to the kingdom, and it is a joy to have you traveling this journey with me, with the Word of God as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. This is the one-year Bible reading for August the 13th, and we are starting in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 5, verse 14. And Nehemiah, along with many, many people along, especially those who are living along the edge of the wall of Jerusalem, have finished building the wall, or about to. Ne I, Nehemiah, would like to mention that for the entire 12 years that I was governor of Judah, from the 20th until the 32nd year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, Neither I nor my officials drew on our official food allowance. This was quite a contrast to the former governors who had laid heavy burdens on people, demanding a daily ration of food and wine besides a pound of silver. Even their assistants took advantage of the people. But because of my fear of God, I did not act that way. I devoted myself to working on the wall and refused to acquire any land and I required all my, my officials to spend time working on the wall. I asked for nothing, even though I regularly fed 150 Jewish officials at my table, besides all the visitors from the other lands. The provisions required at my expense for each day were one ox, six fat sheep, and a large number of domestic fowl. And every day I had a large supply of all kinds of wine. Yet I refused to claim the governor's food allowance because the people were already having a difficult time. Remember, oh my God, all that I have done for these people and bless me for it. When Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remained, though we had not yet hung the doors in the gate, Sanballat and Geshem sent me a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But I realized that they were plotting to harm me, so I replied by sending this message to them. I am doing a great work. I cannot stop to come and meet you. Four times they sent the same message, and each time I gave the same reply. The fifth time, Sanballat's servant came with an open letter in his hand, and this is what it said. Geshem tells me that everywhere he goes, he hears that you and the Jews are planning to rebel, and that is why you are building the wall. According to his reports, you plan to be their king. He also reports that you have appointed prophets to prophesy about you in Jerusalem, saying, Look, there is a king in Judah. You can be very sure that this will give back to the king, so I suggest that you come and talk it over with me. My reply was, You know you are lying. There is no truth in any part of your story. They were just trying to intimidate us, imagining that they could break our resolve and stop the work. So I prayed for strength to continue the work. Later, I went to visit Shemaiah, son of Delaiah, and grandson of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home. He said, let us meet together inside the temple of God and bolt the doors shut. I'm coming to kill you tonight. But I replied, should someone in my position run away from danger? Should someone in my position enter the temple to save his life? No, I won't do it. I realized that God had not spoken to him, but that he had uttered this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. They were hoping to intimidate me and make me sin by following his suggestion. 
then they would be able to accuse and discredit me. Remember, O oh my God, all the evil things Tobiah and Sanballat have done. And remember Noadiah the prophet and all the prophets like her who have tried to intimidate me. So, on October 2nd, the wall was finally finished, just 52 days after we had begun. When our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. They realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. During those 52 days, many letters went back and forth between Tobiah and the officials of Judah. For many in Judah had sworn allegiance to him because his father-in-law was Sekaniah, son of Ara, and because his son, Jehonanan was married to the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. They kept telling me what a wonderful man Tobiah was, and then they told him everything I said, and Tobiah sent me many, sent many threatening letters to intimidate me. After the wall was finished and I had hung the doors and the gates, the gatekeepers, singers, and Levites were appointed. I gave the responsibility of governing Jerusalem to my brother, Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, for he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. I said to them, do not leave the gates open during the hottest part of the day. And while the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut and bar the doors. Appoint the residents of Jerusalem to act as guards, everyone on a, re on a regular watch. Some will serve at their regular posts and some in front of their own homes. At that time, the city was large and spacious, but the population was small and only a few houses were scattered throughout the city. So my God gave me the idea to call together all the leaders of the city, along with the ordinary citizens for registration. I had found the genealogical record of those who had first returned to Judah. This is what was written there. Here is a list of the Jewish exiles from the provinces who returned from their captivity to Jerusalem and to the other towns of Judah. They had been deported to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. Their leaders were Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sarahiah, Realiah, Nehemani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mitzpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Bena. This is the number of men of Israel who returned from exile. The family of Parosh, 2,172. The family of Shephatiah, 372. The family of Ara, 652. The family of Pehath Moab, the descendants of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. The family of Elam, 1,254. The family of Zatu, 845. The family of Zechiah, 760. The family of Bani, 648. The family of Bibai, 628. The family of Asgad, uh, 2,322. The family of Adonikam, 667. The family of Bigvei, 2067. The family of Adin, 655. The family of Ater, the descendants of Hezekiah, 98. The family of Hashum, 328. The family of Bezai, 324. The family of Jorah, 112. The family of Gibar, 95. The peoples of Bethlehem and Netopha, 188. The people of Anathoth, 128. The people of Beth, Beth Asmatheth, 42. The peoples of Kiriath-Jerim, Kephira, and Beeroth, 
743, the peoples of Rama and Giba, 621, the people of Michmash, 122, the peoples of Bethel and Ai, 123, the peoples of Nebo, 52, the citizens of Elam, 1,254, the citizens of Harim, 320, the citizens of Jericho, 345, the citizens of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, Three, uh, 721, the citizens of Sena, 3,930. These are the priests who returned from exile. The family of Jediah through the line of Joshua, 973. The family of Imer, 1,052. The family of Pashur, 1,247. The family of Harim, 1,017. These are the Levites who returned from exile. The families of Jeshua and Cadmiel, the descendants of Hodaviah, 74. The singers of the family of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers of the families of Shalem, Ater, Talman, Akub, Hatita, and Shobai, 138. The descendants of the following temple servants returned from exile. Ziha, Hasufa, Tebeoth, Keros, Sieha, Hadon, Labana, Hagabah, Shalmai, Hanan, Gidel, Gahar, Riea, Rezin, Nakoda, Gazam, Uza, Pasea, Bezea, Meunem, Nefusim, Bakbuk, Hakufa, Harher, Basluth, Mahida, Harsha, Barkos, Sisera, Tema, Neziah, and Hatifa. The descendants of these servants of King Solomon returned from exile. Sotai, Sophereth, Paruda, Jela, Darkon, Gidel, Shephatiah, Hattel, Pokereth, Hazabim, and Amai. In all, the temple servants and the descendants of Solomon's servants numbered 392. Another group returned to Jerusalem at this time from the towns of Telma, uh, Telmela, Telharsa, Carib, Adin, and Imer. However, they could not prove that they or their families were descendants of Israel. This group included the families of Delaiah, Tobiah, and Nakoda, a total of 642 people. Three families of priests, uh, Hobaiah, Hakaz, and Brazilii, also returned to Jerusalem. This Brazilii had married a woman who was a descendant of Brazilii of Gilead, and he had taken her family name. But they had lost their genealogical records, so they were not allowed to serve as priests. The governor would not even let them eat the priest's share of food from the sacrifices until there was a priest who could consult the Lord about the matter by means of sacred lots. So a total of 42,360 people returned to Judah. In addition, to 7,337 servants and 245 singers, both men and women. They took with them 736 horses, 245 mules, three, uh, sorry, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. Some of the family leaders gave gifts for the work. The governors gave to the treasury 1,000 gold coins, 50 gold basins, and 530 robes for the priests. The other leaders gave to the treasury a total of 20,000 gold coins and some 2,750 pounds of silver for the work. 
The rest of the people gave 20,000 gold coins and about 2,500 pounds of silver and 67 robes for the priests. So the priests, the Levites, and the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, along with some of the people, that is to say, all Israel, settled in their own towns. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now let's talk about food that has been sacrificed to idols. You, Corinthians, think that everyone should agree with your perfect knowledge. While knowledge may make us feel important, it is love that really builds up the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. But only the person who loves God is the one God knows and cares for. So now, what about it? Should we eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god, and that there is only one god and no other. According to some people, there are many so-called gods and many lords, both in heaven and on earth. But we know that there is only one God, the Father, who created everything, and we exist for him. And there is only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom God made everything, and through whom we have been given life. However, not all Christians realize this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods, and their weak consciences are violated. It's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't miss out on anything if we don't eat it, and we don't gain anything if we do. But you must be careful with this freedom of yours. Do not cause a brother or sister with a weaker conscience to stumble. You see, this is what can happen. Weak Christians who think it is wrong to eat this food will see you eating in the temple of an idol. You know there's nothing wrong with it, but they will be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been dedicated to the idol. So because of your superior knowledge, a weak Christian for whom Christ died will be destroyed. And you are sinning against Christ when you sin against other Christians by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong. If what I eat is going to make another Christian sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to make another Christian stumble. Psalm 33, verses 1 through 11. Let the godly sing with joy to the Lord, for it is fitting to praise him. Praise the Lord with melodies on the lyre. Make music for him on the ten-stringed harp. Sing new songs of praise to him. Play skillfully on the harp and sing with joy. For the word of the Lord holds true, and everything he does is worthy of our trust. He loves whatever is just and good, and his unfailing love fills the earth. The Lord merely spoke, and the heavens were created. He breathed the word, and all the stars were born. He gave the sea its boundaries, and locked the oceans in vast reservoirs. Let everyone in the world fear the Lord, and let everyone stand in awe of him. For when he spoke, the world began. It appeared at his command. The Lord shatters the plans of the nations and, and thwarts all their schemes. But the Lord's plans stand firm forever. His intentions can never be shaken. Proverbs 21, 8-10 The guilty walk a crooked path. The innocent travel a straight road. It is better to live alone in the corner of an attic than with a contentious wife in a lovely home. Evil people love to harm others. Their neighbors get no mercy from them. 
and today I'm going to start a new chapter with you from The Life You've Always Wanted by John Ortberg, and this one is called The Guided Life, Receiving Guidance from the Holy Spirit. It starts with a quote from Thomas Kelly. There is a way of ordering our mental life on more than one level at once. On one level, we may be thinking, discussing, seeing, calculating, meeting all the demands of external affairs. But deep within, behind the scenes, at a profounder level, we may also be in prayer and adoration, song and worship, and a gentle receptiveness to divine breathings. So in this chapter, Ortberg writes, I look at the way we receive what we might be called leadings or promptings from the Holy Spirit. Through the centuries, Christians have given different names to this phenomenon. In his journal, George Fox wrote about the Lord's opening a truth to him, by which he meant that God had spoken to directly, not through, not necessarily audibly, to his mind. John Calvin spoke of the, quote, inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. St. Ignatius talked about, quote, movements of the soul, thoughts or desires that could be, in fact, gifts given directly to us by God to move us closer to him. These promptings may come as conviction of sin, an assurance of God's love, or a call to action, but they are crucial to the spirit-guided life. We must learn to listen for the still, small voice. In fact, being open and receptive to the leadings of the Holy Spirit is a non-optional part of transformation. Richard Foster makes this point. In our day, heaven and earth are on tiptoe waiting for the emerging of a spirit-led, spirit-intoxicated, spirit-empowered people. All of creation watches expectantly for the springing up of a disciplined, freely gathered, martyred people who know in this life um, the life and power of the kingdom of God. It has happened before, it can happen again. Such a people will not emerge until there is among us a deeper, more profound experience of an Emmanuel of the Spirit, God with us a knowledge that in the power of the Spirit Jesus has come to guide his people himself, an experience of his leading that is as definite and as immediate as the cloud by day and fire by night. I believe that the Holy Spirit really does lead or guide or give direction to human beings, ordinary people, or Berg writes. He wants to do this for all of us. We can all learn how to be open to the promptings of the Spirit. They are not reserved for the elite or for leaders only, or for, quote, important people. They are not reserved for people who work as pastors or missionaries. They are not reserved for people who are, quote, more spiritual than you. The Holy Spirit can and will give direction to us if we desire it. You may be right on the verge of experiencing this. Your adventure is about to begin. <laughs> Have a beautiful day. Love you all.